Good morning, church, and blessings to you and your family. This is the sermon meant for April 26th, 2020. I've always thought Christians were like dogs. Some are Chihuahuas, some are St. Bernard's, some are Border Collies. In my mind, Pentecostals are like Jack Russell Terriers, Catholics are a bit like Poodles, and Baptists are like a bloodhound that is a couple years past its prime and doesn't get off the porch much anymore. My point is this, though. Dogs all look and act different. But you still know a dog when you see it. They are defining characteristics of what makes a canine a canine. And we, Christians, those in the church, we all look and act differently, but we have defining characteristics that when someone looks at us, they go, ah, that's a Christian. We believe Jesus is the Son of God and the only path to peace with God. We believe that the Bible is God's word. We believe there is a moral code to follow. Today I'm doing something different. It's not a sermon, per se. It's a declaration. The reason for this is I've had conversations with a few individuals recently that disagree with me on this point. And as a pastor, it's my job not just to nurture correct belief and action, but to correct wrong thinking as well. The conversations I've had with these people center around what does it mean to be a Christian? At the very core of our identity, what are we and what do we stand for? Conversation with one pastor in particular has bothered me. Because I found out that what he understood to be a Christian is not what I understand. He did not believe in the Bible as God's word. He didn't believe that Jesus was the only way to heaven. He didn't believe that it was a primary role of Christians to go into the world and tell the people the good news. I tell you, in a world where Christians are like dogs, he is a barking cat. And he isn't the only one. A lot of people recently feel apologetic over being a Christian or being associated as a Christian or being associated with a specific denomination. Too many people are ashamed of our history and our theology. They're ashamed of scriptures. They're ashamed of the cross. And the more that I think on it, the more upset I get. Because we are the bride of Christ. And it's like, we don't even want to be seen or associated with Christ anymore. Like being a Christian is an embarrassing thing, that it's something we should apologize for. You know, Heather and I don't get out much. But when I do, I put a brown paper bag on her head just in case. That's a joke. That's a horrible thing to do, right? To cover the identity of our beloved but that's what we are doing with Jesus Christ when we go out into the world ashamed to be seen or associated with him. And this is not a new phenomenon. Paul dealt with this all the way at the beginning of Romans. Christianity was the laughingstock of those outside of the church. And Paul states boldly in chapter 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You see, Christianity has never had a popular message. Paul tells us that the message of Jesus and the cross was foolishness to the Gentiles. The Romans thought the older an idea was, the truer it was. 
They adopted ancient ideas, ancient gods, and theologies from many of the people that they conquered. And here was a contemporary, to them at least, carpenter, a rabbi from nowhere, never written a book, never spoken in Athens, never had any political influence, and a group of uneducated poor people claiming he was a god. It was utter foolishness to them. Paul tells us that the message of Christ and the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. You see, they had yearned for their Messiah for a millennium. And the Christians were claiming that some commoner had lived, taught, and died a criminal's death. And then they were turned over to that death by the Jews' own hands. The long-awaited Messiah. Where was the kingdom? Where was the throne of David? Where was the glory? Where was the fleeing heathens from the wrath of the Messiah? They couldn't swallow the thought that Jesus was the Messiah. And so it was a stumbling block to the Jews. It has always been that way throughout history. There is always some part of the Bible that we teach that some just can't swallow. There are always parts that people will decry as foolish, or they will be stumbling blocks to their faith. This morning, amidst all the people apologizing for Christianity, I too would like to apologize for Christianity. But I want to apologize in the original sense of the word. The word apology comes from the Greek apologia. And it means a justification of your actions or defense of your beliefs or behavior. You see, in modern culture, we've turned it into a synonym for being sorry. But originally it meant to defend who you are. Like Paul, we must declare, each one of us, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I am not ashamed of the Bible. I was talking with someone a few weeks back about whether or not everyone would get into heaven. And she asked me if I'd read The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. And of course I had. What some of you may not realize is that C.S. Lewis was a universalist. He believed that in God's wisdom and provision, all people would get into heaven. And that hell, if real, was a temporary place like purgatory. And it's a stance that we, from an emotional and compassionate point of view, wish was true. And yet I told her that from Scripture, I don't believe we can defend that point of view. I showed her some verses where Jesus says that hell is real and that God sends people there. And she got upset. She told me to argue my point not using the Bible because it was a supremely flawed book and not worth using. I was taken back. Why should we not use the Bible as a source of authority on God? In fact, I'm not sure what other book I would have tried to use to make a point about God. I don't think I could have formed a theological argument about hell from Green Eggs and Ham or the Twilight series. Don't use the Bible? Why not? The Bible's never proven untrue to me. Over the centuries, people have sneered at people, events, places in the, in the Bible, and time and time again... They've turned out to be wrong, and Scripture right. Bible critics had long ignored references in the Bible to a people called the Hittites. Their opinion was that the Hittites were mythical people invented to scare the Jews into obedience. Some critics said they may have been a small, unimportant tribe, but for a long time, that was considered a gracious stance in academia. But then... At the end of the 1800s, Hittite monuments were uncovered at Carchemish on the Euphrates River in Syria. 
1906, excavations had begun at Hattusis, the ancient capital of the Hittite Empire in Turkey. And archaeologists began to uncover thousands of Hittite documents, revealing a wealth of information about Hittite culture and history. And the centuries-old belief that the Hittites were an invented people had to fall by the wayside as scholars were forced to admit that they were a real and formidable empire. Many Bible critics believe that the Babylonian captivity did not take place. The Bible gives specific details about the captivity of Judah and the armies of Babylon um, taking over Jerusalem in the 6th century BC. But scholars had said it was a Jewish myth. However, between 1935 and 1938, important discoveries were made 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem at ancient Lachish. Lachish was one of the cities recorded in the Bible as being besieged by the king of Babylon at the time of the siege of Jerusalem. They found 21 pottery fragments inscribed in ancient Hebrew that were unearthed. They were exchanges between the city's military commander and an outlying observation post, and they recorded the final days of Judah's desperate struggle against Babylon. And since the 30s, there's been many more unearthings of Babylonian historical texts describing the conquest of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. The list is extensive. Over 50 people, some 300 places, and two dozen historical events recorded in the Bible that were once thought to be made up have now been confirmed through archaeology. Camels weren't domesticated by the time of Abraham until they found pottery depicting domesticated camels from 1600 B.C. Nehemiah wasn't real. Hosea wasn't real. Pontius Pilate wasn't real until we found out that they were. And one of the greatest discoveries dealt with Jesus himself. You see, there are 60 specific prophecies about Jesus. They are so diverse and specific that for 200 years, scholars had come to the conclusion that the prophecies had to have been written after Jesus had lived. Malachi, Isaiah, Zechariah, all false prophecies. They were so specific, that was the only conclusion. Do you know what the mathematical chances of the eight easiest to confirm prophecies about Jesus being true are? It is the mathematical equivalent of filling Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, marking one with an X, and telling a blind person to walk throughout the state and pick up just one. And they pick up the one with the X. And that is the mathematical chances of just eight of the 60. To someone in which prophecy is a necessarily impossible thing, there was no way these prophecies were written before Jesus. And then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. 15,000 manuscripts, 870 scrolls, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Ezekiel, Daniel. In fact, every book of the Bible of the Old Testament except Esther. And there in Cave 1, the great Isaiah scroll, a thousand years older than the previous oldest copy we had, dated to 120 B.C., completely intact and identical with all prophecies to the Isaiahs we already had. Scholars couldn't say it had been written after Jesus anymore. Of course, now Jesus and the disciples aren't real. I saw a National Geographic article that said that the disciples were probably made up to justify people's belief that there had been eyewitnesses. It's hard to understand that kind of cynicism, and you wonder, 
The Bible has been proven true again and again. Why do we continue betting against it? I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ. He taught truth, love, grace, forgiveness, acceptance, kindness, self-control. He reached out to every person he met, women, children, foreigners, the poor, the sick, the dying, the demon-possessed, the culturally oppressed. It didn't matter who you were or what you'd done. He loved them. And everybody pretty much loves Jesus in return. Any person, whether they're Buddhists or agnostics like Jesus. Muhammad said to follow Jesus because he was holy and knew the way to eternal life. Gandhi said he loved Christ. There's a group right now called Atheists for Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. But the Jesus that we like is a Jesus of personal filtering. Much of what Jesus said is conveniently ignored by many of those because it is foolishness or a stumbling block to the world. But we don't have the privilege or the authority to take what Jesus said or did and exclude the rest. If we believe he's God, we take all of it or none of it. I am not ashamed of when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or when Caiaphas, the high priest, asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Or when Jesus exclaimed, If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for you to go to hell. Or sell all you have and give the money to the poor. Then you'll have treasures in heaven. Or I tell you, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said many hard things. Things that are difficult to accept and to practice. But I am not ashamed of the hard things. I accept the entire person and teaching. Accept the whole of Jesus or admit you've created a whole new Jesus in your mind. Jesus claimed to be the only way to heaven. He claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah. He asked us to be, believe he was holy, to be sacrificing. He said, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, carry the cross daily, submit completely. We don't get the luxury of ignoring those parts of Jesus. We either unashamedly accept all of him or admit we have created God in our image. I'm not ashamed of the cross. This pastor I was talking to was talking about how the cross is an ugly symbol. It's not allowed in his church because it has a sullied past, because people have stood beside that cross and used it as a symbol while they oppressed and killed. I agree to some point. You cannot say every man and woman who carried the cross in their hands lived a good life. Honestly, not by a long shot. But I'm not ashamed of the cross because I see the cross in the same way that God sees the cross. It is a symbol of salvation. It is a symbol of love. It is a symbol of peace. We get so wound up in what does the cross mean to others that we forget that what really matters is what does the cross mean to God. The cross is a symbol of salvation because God makes it clear that we are imperfect people, failures, each and every one of us. And we are given the opportunity to work our way to heaven and each one of us fails in that too. You can't be good enough to get there. Think of the cross from God's eyes, all of the sinful and rebellious humanity dying. Sin and sickness and discord are now plaguing his creation. The world is ruined because of man's actions. Nature is in shambles. And the only answer is the death of Jesus. As a criminal, 
in a torturous and humiliating way. And he does it to provide a way for salvation to all who believe. The cross is a symbol of love because God loved humanity so much that he died for them. And as he hung there at Golgotha and those people were mocking him, the the very ones he made, jeering at him, he was still able to call out in the end, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The cross is a symbol of peace. We were enemies with God in our sin and we have peace through the blood of Christ. Yeah, Christians have turned that cross into a symbol of war. But to God, that cross stands tall as the ultimate act of reconciliation. And I think, instead of apologizing for what others have done in the name of God and under the guise of the cross, we need to boldly hold that cross up and give them a better example. If you think the cross of Jesus doesn't show his love, his grace, his kindness, his heart, his mission for the world... The answer is not to disassociate yourself from that cross. It's to flood the world with such goodness that it takes on the meaning it was always supposed to have. I am not ashamed of being known as a Christian. I'm not ashamed to be known as a Baptist. We tend to like God and Jesus in our culture. We don't like the word Christian. We really don't like denominations. And as a millennial, I understand that. I don't like the splits and divisions. To me, what separates us is minuscule compared to what unites us. But I will still stand and proudly proclaim that I am God's. I am a Christian. I am a Baptist. I am not ashamed of our tradition, where it was made a capital offense throughout Europe to want to be baptized as a consenting adult. And because we were pacifists, not thinking that it was right that God should have a standing army, the armies of the Pope and the armies of Luther and Zwingli, they chased us down and rooted us out of their countries, killing us by the tens of thousands. And I'm proud that we did not fight back, but we fled to the mountains to survive and prayed for our enemies. I'm not ashamed that 500 years later we can love and serve one another and we can break bread together, recognizing that we all serve the same Christ. I'm not ashamed that we burned with the heart of God and sent the first modern missionaries into the world. Men like Adoniram Judson in Burma and Hudson Taylor in China. Where we didn't want to come in as superior to others, but instead live among the people and teach them the faith. I'm not ashamed that when the Constitution of America left the people unprotected without rights, there was a Baptist pastor, John Leland, and his church that fought for a Bill of Rights, and with James Madison wrote out that man had the right to choose his own faith, to speak freely, to peaceably assemble, to have just courts, and have the right to defend those beliefs. I'm not ashamed that when those rights were trampled by an indifferent country, that another Baptist pastor stood up and declared in front of the Lincoln Memorial, I have a dream that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. I am not ashamed that we currently have the most diverse denomination in America and the second youngest, that we continue to pursue good in this world. I have friends working to abolish the slave trade, the drug trade, the arms trade. I have friends 
who are in orphanages, hospitals, shelters, food kitchens, from Tijuana to Kuala Lumpur to Budapest, for the sake of the gospel. Go into the church when this is all over, and look at that big map. Look at where all of our missionaries are currently stationed. I will not apologize for their work and their sacrifice. The Bible tells a story of someone who was ashamed of Christ. The Apostle Peter knew Jesus Christ at an intimate level, and yet at the end of his days denied him three times. While Jesus was bound and being interrogated inside the high priest's house, Peter sat out by the, by the fire and refused to be identified with him. And yet after the Holy Spirit came in power at Pentecost, this same Peter stood among the multitudes at Passover and declared this boldly, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, and he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. I think we can say that those who are ashamed of their faith who deny Christ, who try to apologize for our values, they do not have the power of the Spirit because the Spirit testifies to Christ and glorifies the Father. And those who are living in the Spirit will do the same, just as Peter did and the other disciples. This morning, I want you to look deep inside yourself. Examine your beliefs. Do we have the mindset that we should somehow be embarrassed of God and of his word and his plan of salvation? Do we apologize for the cross and for the word Christian? It's not right. We proclaim Christ and him crucified. And if you cannot do it proudly and boldly, if you cannot honestly say that believing in him is the only way to heaven and the Bible testifies to him truthfully and reliably, then I'm sorry. You are a barking cat. And God is calling you today to reorient yourself in Him.